Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. It's a special live edition at the Politics Live podcast festival. We're in London, in Euston. It's a Saturday morning. I've got Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke with me. We're going to talk about one of our favourite subjects on Talking Politics, which is, is it really true that British politics has never been like this before? Is it actually unprecedented? We have one yes. <laughs> so we're going to uh, maybe challenge that, maybe not. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So we're going to talk about some particular examples from early 20th century British political history that maybe throw an interesting light on what's happening now. But we're just going to start with a, a broader conversation about this, because you'll be aware it's become almost a cliche of contemporary politics that various things that happen are regularly described as unprecedented. So we had unprecedented scenes in the House of Commons where everybody started screaming at each other. The Supreme Court judgment was an unprecedented rebuke of a prime minister. Politicians darkly intimating that if X or Y doesn't happen, the people might rise up and riot is described as unprecedented. Some of this is and some of it isn't. Some of it is unprecedented in our lifetime. Some of it really has never happened before. Helen, if you had to characterise in the current political moment, what is the bit that really is new, where we really don't have a historical parallel? Which bit of it would you pick out? Well, I think that the, the Brexit itself, as opposed to all the things that have happened around it, there isn't anything you can go back and compare with that. Because the moment when the majority of the British electorate who voted in the referendum in June 2016 voted leave then our existing constitutional order, a very significant part of it that involved European Union membership, was immediately, from that very moment, in a crisis. Because effectively, half the electorate, or half the voting electorate, had said they did not consent to the constitutional arrangements of this country. And that's never happened And I, I, I can't think of anything that's quite like that. To the extent that you can sort of go back and find some popular rebellions, if you like, against established constitutional authority, they don't involve holding a referendum. Uh, if you go back to the breakdown of consent to, uh, in 1688, you know, to uh, James, James II, that is going on at the parliament level. It doesn't involve the electorate, because the electorate's so tiny, it's not that tiny, but it's, it's relatively small anyway, in, uh, in 1688. So I think that Although you can find lots of parallels for things that Brexit then represents, things that Brexit let loose, including the politics of the union, that actual moment where a majority of the electorate express their dissatisfaction with the existing constitutional arrangements in a referendum, we haven't been there before. So when I look at it, um, and we'll come on to some things, I think a lot of 
the current situation, you can find parallels for bits of it. It's the combination. But one of the things, and we've talked about this quite a lot on Talking Politics, one of the things that does seem hard to draw parallels with from any time in the past is a government that can't govern, a government that, under the terms of our constitution, should have been replaced, not having been replaced because no one has confidence in the possible alternative governments either. I find it hard to think of a parallel moment where, of course, there are lots of moments where confidence just drains away from a government, yeah. but that no one can construct any conceivable alternative government that has a possibility of governing. I can't see a parallel for that. I think that's right, that the... Um one of the fundamental pillars of the British Constitution for a very long time now has been that the government can get its business through the House of Commons. And what we've seen with Theresa May's government ever since the election in 27 is a government that could get some business through the House of Commons, but it absolutely couldn't get its, its, core business. its most important business yeah. through the House of Commons. And now we have a government that cannot get any business through the House of Commons. And I think, obviously, this is downstream from what Helen was talking about a moment ago, but I think it's this fact that means we're seeing so much constitutional innovation or quasi-innovation at the moment because the system isn't supposed to work like this. So you're seeing all the different shenanigans, and we saw that in particular over prorogation of government attempting to govern while it doesn't have what you're absolutely supposed to have, which is a working majority in the House of Commons. Um, and that's what led to the, the recent case in the Supreme Court and its judgment. We're in very unusual constitutional waters, and that means other institutions do have to say how they think it should go, because you are fundamentally not supposed to have a government that cannot get any business at all through the House of Commons. And Helen, do you, is one feature of this, again, where it's hard to think of the parallel? So obviously you get parties that have problems with their leaders and maybe the, part, the relationship between the leader and the party, whether it's in parliament or the membership, gets very strained. But one distinctive feature of contemporary politics is the role of the membership in choosing the leaders of the parties. And now we have two leaders where there's a very, very strained relationship at some level with aspects or large chunks of the parliamentary party. But there isn't really a mechanism for replacing these leaders. And again, it, at previous moments, it would have been more fluid you know, one of the features of contemporary British politics is it feels frozen in various ways. There are bits of it where people can see that the bits have got clogged up, but they can't see how to unclog it. That both main parties should, should have leaders where the leaders seem fixed in place, and yet, under previous circumstances, it might have been a more fluid situation. Is that new? Well, I think you've got to distinguish here between the Conservative side and the, and the Labour side, because on the Conservative side, I don't think there's anything actually unusual in what's going on in the sense is that the, the members had the final vote on the Conservative leader, but they voted for the same person whom the MPs put ahead from pretty early on in the leadership election. The thing that is different and has been playing out really since 2000. 15, so before the, the referendum, is, is that the Labour Party is led by someone whom the majority of his parliamentary colleagues have got great doubts about, and at least a reasonable number of them don't think is fit to be Prime Minister. So if you say, because Chris is entirely right, that you know, the constitutional immediate problem is, is that we have a government that shouldn't exist, why does it exist? when it shouldn't exist, the answer is, is because the opposition, who has no confidence in this government, 
refuses to remove it from office, either by replacing it with an alternative government or by allowing a general election to determine a new parliament. And, and why is that the case? This is because in normal circumstances, when you've got a government in crisis, the main opposition party would be gagging to have its leader as prime minister. But that isn't the case in this instance. So I think that the, the crucial relationship that's broken down isn't really about the members and the that the members play a part in the Labour issue, obviously, but it isn't between the members and the leader. It's because the Labour Party has a leader who lacks confidence of enough of his MPs actually to act constitutionally as the leader of the opposition needs to. So one of the features of the, the current situation is that, again, makes it unusual. We've got a government that wants to hold an election and we've got an opposition that's, for now at least, not allowing it. And a lot of the frozen aspects of this might unfreeze a bit after the 31st, we'll have to see. Currently, the month that looks likeliest for there to be a general election, though, who knows, is December. It was going to be October, then it was going to be November, now it looks like December, and who knows. But it is one of the things that shows that we're in an unusual time in British politics, because we often talk about what are the rules that used to apply and no longer apply. So one of the rules of British politics that maybe no longer applies is never ever have a general election in winter <laughs> because it's cold, well, it used to be cold. Um, <laughs> it's still dark, people are really grumpy, they've got seasonally affective disorder, Christmas is coming, they've got other things on their mind. You're taking a big risk with the electorate if you make them go to the polls a week, two weeks before Christmas. That's one of the, the rules. So we may well be facing a December election. So I looked, see, when was the last December election? So that rule, do it in late spring, early summer, where people are feeling all cheerful and sunny. So the last non-late spring, early summer election was the second general election in 1974, which was in October. So you know British politics is in trouble where the elections drift into winter. But for a December election, you have to go back 100 years. And actually, there were three during the period that I think we maybe suspect is the closest parallel to now which is the early 20th century. So there was a December election in 1910. There was a December election in 1918. There was a December election in 1923. There was a world war in between. That's not going to happen now. Um, <laughs> but each of these elections actually has some quite interesting parallels with now and does reflect some of the ways that what we've talked about being new, it's not all new. So we'll, we'll just do a few minutes on each of them and then see if we can pull some of the threads together and then open it up. And I hope you'll, you'll bear with us for this. It, uh, we think it's interesting. <laughs> um, so Chris, should we start with, with 1910? So 1910, again, was a year of two elections, I'm right? Mm -hmm. yeah. that, that's right. And the, um, the first election of 1910, I think, is also relevant here because it was a January election. There was a campaigning truce over the Christmas period. But also it had its origins in a crisis of a government unable to get its business through Parliament. In this case, it was the House of Lords rejecting Lloyd George's 1909 budget at the end of November. Asquith then prorogued Parliament, that's a word we didn't pay much attention to until recently, ahead of a dissolution. And just as Boris Johnson now wants to have his election as Parliament against the people, or at least everyone thinks that's going to be the theme of the Conservative campaign. This was the era of the peers against the people. That was the great Liberal rallying cry. And the idea was that if Asquith could get his Liberal government re-elected after, so it had won a landslide in 1906, 
And if it could get re-elected in 1910, then the House of Lords was going to back down and allow the budget through. So I think that's got an awful lot of aspects in common with our present situation. In the background, as well as being an immediate constitutional crisis about the powers of the House of Lords, in the background is also the question of Britain's fundamental trading relationships with the rest of the world, because the Liberals were committed to the old free trade policy, and the Conservatives were having their internal rows about tariff reform, or what was called imperial preference. So we have that combination of constitutional crisis and uh, the fundamentals of, of trade policy. So that's why I think that 19, the January 1910 election is the really interesting one. If you want a December election, you have to go to the second election of 1910. Right, and this is where a live podcast is harder than not live, because I get my phone out at this point and try to remind myself which, what the sequence was. But one of the other issues here was there was a feeling that parliamentary government was gridlocked, yep. the need for these elections in a fairly short time span. And there was this fear that... Government was gridlocked through Parliament. It's the fear that you hear today. But if we have another election, it might produce another gridlocked Parliament. You know, how, how are we going to get out of this if the electorate, who are divided on these fundamental lines, they're not shifting? How are you going to get beyond it? And I, for me, one of the really striking things about the, the second election in that year was that it did produce an almost identical it, outcome, it, I think. It was an exact tie. It was an exact tie, 272 seats. For each so, so, so this fear that which we have now. What if we have an election and we're just gridlocked again? But actually, in that case, it did move the story on, and the parliament that was created lasted for eight years. And actually, much of the fundamental reform of British politics happened under that parliament. There is a point at which even an election that produces the same result can nonetheless be the moment where things start to shift because you've got to create a new government. And though it was still Asquith, the terms on which he governed were altered by the fact that new negotiations took place. Is that right? I think that's pretty optimistic, <laughs> to be honest. What about now or about then? <laughs> about then, rendition of, like, of it. Because, you, sure, you had a government that lasted for eight years, and even if we leave the, the First World War <laughs> out of it, you have a Conservative Party that, by the end of um, 90... or before the war was starting, was essentially willing to threaten civil war in Ireland. And the... One of the things then that happens between the January election and the December, or two, I think really significant things that happen between the January election and the December election, is first of all is, is because the Liberals don't end up with the majority that they had in 1906, they have to rely on support from Labour and the Irish Nationalists, the Irish Parliamentary Party, and the price of the Irish Nationalist support is Home Rule for Ireland, and that brings in a whole other constitutional um, question because then there's the, the basically the Irish version of the West Lothian question comes into play, and the Conservative and Unionist Party starts saying that actually Home Rule doesn't have legitimacy, that it needs elect, an election behind it, which is one of the reasons why you move into having a second election. It's not the only one, because the second reason why something really significant happens in between is the king. The king dies between... King Edward VII dies between these two elections and the king doesn't want various things to happen including the possibility of having to appoint more liberals to the lords in order to allow the lords reform to go through without there being an election and George V thinks that that has to hold after Edward VII died which is in May and then by the time you get to the December 2000 sorry I keep saying 2010 December 1910 election you've got a whole other people versus parliament 
argument, because now you've got the Conservatives basically arguing that the Lords are the defenders of the people against the House of Commons that's out of control and doesn't have legitimacy in relation to England. Yeah, I saw in the, in the Conservative Manifesto in 1910, they talked about the parliamentary conspiracy, yeah. meaning the idea that governing through the Commons against the Lords was a kind of conspiracy against the people. They do, yeah. So it's one, because of the, the, the reason why they can make that argument is the home rule issue. So, so this is one question where there might be a parallel now. So say we get an election in December, it may not happen in December, but say it does, and it produces a similar-ish result. But I think most people expect that the SNP will do better in terms of seats in Scotland than, than in 2017. It'll be closer to 2015. It may not be the wipeout, but the SNP will have a pretty solid mandate in Westminster terms then a government will have to be created. We can't carry on without a government. And the thing that hasn't happened in this parliament, which is the question of negotiations with the SNP around the possibility of a second referendum, a second Scottish independence referendum, could then become one of the things that just opens up other pathways. Chris, you're looking sceptical. I'm not sure that it does, because it seems to me that if the Scottish Parliament wants a second referendum, the Scottish Parliament gets a second referendum. And although in theory they have to get permission from Westminster, for a Westminster government to refuse a second independence referendum that the Scottish Parliament has asked for will immediately vindicate everything that Scottish nationalists have alleged about there being a conspiracy in Westminster to deny Scots their democratic right to self-determination. And so that's something that politicians in Westminster have to tread very, very carefully around. So lots of people think that you know, some of the recent politicking inside the Labour Party and the disagreements opening up between John McDonnell and Richard Leonard um, are to do with you know, whether a referendum will be offered as part of a, a, a deal to stitch up support for a, probably a Labour minority government. But I think it's a bit of a red herring, because I think if the, if the Scottish Parliament wants one, the Scottish Parliament gets one, and the attitude of the... Uh, Westminster parties doesn't really matter that much. So, so what then do you think would be the relationship of the SNP, say, to a minority government after the next election? Do you think that for that reason there isn't leverage here? What's the... I, I, I think it's very difficult. I think a lot of people, broadly speaking, on the left who identify as progressives think there is a kind of affinity between the Labour Party and the SNP, and I don't really see it. The SNP has no interest in Britain being governed especially well. And um, the Labour Party in Scotland and the SNP absolutely hate each other. I don't quite see the grounds for a stable deal, which is partly why I do think that we're going to keep, we're going to keep seeing hung parliaments, or we're going to keep seeing it being very difficult to see where a stable parliamentary majority will emerge. So and one more question about this one before we come on to 1918. So you say you can't tell this story and leave the First World War out of it. That parliament that I described as lasting for eight years, well, it did, but partly because a war intervened. Things were really ratcheting up in 1913, 1914, so it's not as if that parliament resolved any of these questions. I mean, there were victories and there were defeats, but particularly around the Irish question and the relationship of um, Westminster government to the whole question of the governance of Ireland. It got more and more heated, and you know, people who say it's unprecedented, this kind of talk about popular uprisings and even threats of violence. It was right the way through politics then. And then the First World War came along, and Asquith, among others, said, well, at least we've got a war now to take people's attention off Ulster. <laughs> uh, be careful what you wish for. It's an almost impossible question, but had the war not intervened? Now, how close was the system to breaking down before a bigger event forced people to take a very different perspective? Was that the moment where 
this Westminster system was under strain to the point of possibly breaking? I think you can argue that it was, because I think there were two different things that were going on with the, the home rule question. And the Conservative Party under Andrew Law makes a, a strong commitment on both of them, and one of them, you know, to the point of utter recklessness. The first is, is that that Conservative Party under him wants to say, look, we cannot have home rule for Ireland without dealing with what the constitutional implications of that are for the entire Westminster parliamentary system, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty and the place of England in the Union. And that is a particular issue because that Liberal government supported by Labour and the Irish Nationalists don't have a majority in England. And at the same time, Bona Law wants to say there are no lengths to which the Ulster Unionists, they were then the, the, the Protestants in, in Ulster who were resisting Home Rule will go to which I won't back them. Now, given that they were, you know, threatening... They were war, armed and had an army. Yeah, then that was an, a staggering thing for a, uh, a parliamentary leader at Westminster to say. So, and we should say, to put these things in perspective, so we're not there yet with Brexit, right? Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. The, um, I mean, George Dangerfield... Mm. Would, George Dangerfield, in his book, The Strange Death of Liberal England, he's the person who pushes this idea that England in 1914, Britain in 1914, may have been on the brink of some kind of revolution and that war averted it. I, I think, like many readers of that book, that he overstates his case. And I'm more attracted to the argument that's developed in, an, in another book, that's Ewan Green's book, The Crisis of Conservatism, who ends his book in 1914 with speculation that actually the real crisis faced the Conservative Party, that the Liberals were on course for re-election in 1915, election that they expected, and that then the Conservative Party would have lost four elections in a row and still been all over the place as to what its core policy was of what kind of imperial preference or tariff reform or free trade or whatever. So... Green sees the war as saving the Conservative Party more than as saving the constitutional setup more generally. We can say that Ireland was on the brink of something very dramatic happen happening, but something very dramatic yeah. did happen in Ireland. Yeah, it's not like the war. There yeah. was the 1916 the war rising, war. and the repression that followed, and the revolution, and the war of independence, and then the civil war. So, in a sense, Ireland was on the brink of violence, but the violence didn't come in, in 1914. It came a little later. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So then there's an election. The, ne the next election is another December election, which is in 1918. So that one, I think most people who lived through it described it as the grimmest election of them all. So that election was called on the day of the armistice by Lloyd George. There hadn't been an election for eight years. There needed to be an election, so it was going to have to happen in December. The entire country was suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, I think we would say now. At least large ch chunks of it were, including large parts of the electorate. People had been through collective trauma. There was a flu outbreak in 1918, which was going to worldwide kill more people than died in the war itself. And it was ravaging the UK to the point where attending an election rally 
in December 1918 was a serious health risk because every time a thousand people gathered together in a space, particularly in an enclosed space, some of them died because they gave flu to each other. It was a traumatic election. Everyone who went through it described the atmosphere as being irredeemably gloomy, though we had won the war. But it's interesting for another reason too, not just because of the grimness, because it's known as the coupon election. So it was one of those rare elections in British politics. And again, people talk about it now. How do you do deals across party lines in election terms that allow people who aren't part of the same party somehow to arrange outcomes at the constituency level? And in that election, it did work. There was a pact between the Lloyd George Liberals and the Conservatives. And it's called the coupon election because there was a letter written to candidates saying, you are a true and loyal uh, servant of the government that won the war, and so that the Lloyd George Liberals did very well and the Asquith Liberals were more or less wiped out. And it's very rare, but it does show that you can contrive packs across party lines that do more or less carve up the constituency so that that coalition got a thumping majority. Is there any way that that can happen now? Was that, was that a one-off, leaving aside the extraordinary circumstances of December 1918? that idea that you could forge alliances across party lines as parties split and divide so that you get constituencies going the way you want. Could, you, could anything like that happen this time? I don't think so. We should add as well, there were a few Labour coupon candidates in, in 1918 as well. I think the context is, is because the, the party system, as it was, had pretty clearly broken down during the course of the war, that all the major, all the three parties, so the Liberals, Labour and the, and the Conservatives are effectively divided during the course of the war. And it is also the case in that 1918 election that Sinn Féin replaced the Irish Parliamentary Party. So the Irish aspect of it was taken in a, in a different direction as, uh, as well. And so you could, I think, try and make an argument that says, look, the war is like Brexit in dividing the parties sort of. Um, the context is, is, though, that the parties were already under, difficult, you know, under strain prior to 1914. The, the Irish question had divided the, you know, the Liberals going back into the 1880s. It, the trade question, as Chris had said, divided the Conservatives. You've got people going backwards and forwards between the, the parties. Now, again, you can say, well, maybe that's what's going on now, is you've got people defecting from you yeah. know, standing as independents, or moving to being, not standing, moving to being independents in the House of Commons and then joining the Liberal Democrats after they realise that being an independent doesn't get them as far as that they think it's, it's going to. I still don't think you've got quite got the major players being divided within the parties in the same way in which you have. You haven't got the equivalent of Lloyd George versus Asquith, say, in the the Liberal Party, or what happened in terms of the Labour Party dividing between those who were opposed to the war and those who supported the war. And, and Chris, the, the, you know, the pact that people keep talking about possibly happening, though Boris Johnson has ruled it out, is the Brexit Party, Conservative Party pact. But of course, that's very different because the Brexit Party has no MPs. I mean, here we're talking about dividing up sitting members of Parliament according to whether or not they were, quote-unquote, loyal during the war. That possibility of a Brexit Party Conservative pact, that doesn't really have parallel, certainly not in this period. No, that's right. I mean, I think it's just about possible to rerun the history of the coalition that we had between 2010 and 2015 and imagine how 
something would have gone on with Nick Clegg and there would have been something like a coupon election with a liberal split. That's what you need. You need one of the parties very badly split to create the circumstances for something like a coupon election. What we'd be looking at, again, I don't think there will be an, uh, a formal arrangement between the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party, but if there were, it would be one that involved Conservative Party candidates standing down in certain seats so that Brexit Party candidates would have a free run at Labour MPs in the more Brexity parts of the country. And similarly, when people fantasize about a Remain alliance, again, I don't think there'll be much by way of a Remain alliance, but were one to emerge, it would be a story about parties deciding not to stand candidates. We kind of saw a bit of that in the uh, Brecon and Radnor by-election where some parties didn't stand. Now, some of the parties that didn't stand traditionally didn't stand in that seat, so it wasn't uh, a radical change of direction. But you do get Ply, the Greens, the Liberals kind of sometimes making noises about how um, they could take part in a Remain alliance. But you're um, sceptical that because of the, the, the thing that people won't do is stand out. And again, yeah. if you look at these early 20th century elections, the parties did not put up a candidate in every constituency anyway. It wasn't like our politics now. It wasn't professionalised in that way. And there were very varying numbers if you look at the figures for how many Labour candidates there were and so on. But in the current way of doing politics, the idea of not putting up a candidate in every constituency for a major party is a really big step. That's right. I mean, the, the Liberal Democrats would be comfortable with putting up lots of candidates in the Midlands and the North and so on that don't really get many votes. But they're not going to not put up those candidates because if they're seen to be coming to some kind of cosy arrangement with the Labour Party, that will alienate them from precisely the segment of the electorate they're trying to target, which is remain-leaning conservatives in the south of England who really, really don't like Mr Corbyn. And so I think the, the coming election will be decided in large part by the propensity of voters on both sides of the Brexit divide to vote tactically. But the national parties themselves can only do so much to openly encourage voters in that direction. One last quick question on this one, and then we'll quickly do 20, 23, and then we'll open it up. The other possible parallel here is it's at least possible, although I still think it's pretty unlikely, that a significant number of Labour MPs will defect to support the government in order to get a deal through, which is going to make them have acute difficulties with their own parties, including their own, potentially their own constituency parties, say 30 or 40 Labour MPs. Again, it's not going to happen, but the parallel would have to be a sort of Boris Johnson letter to the voters of these constituencies saying that this Labour MP is all right because they've allowed Brexit to happen. I mean, the mind boggles, not least because it wouldn't be particularly helpful for Stephen Kinnock to have a letter from Boris Johnson saying, um, it's a good chap. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Well, I think that... Go on, one, one word answer, no. Certainly, in, in the terms of what Corbyn seems to have been saying in the last few weeks, is, is that there's a real possibility that any Labour MP who if there were an agreement with the EU, and that is obviously a Big massive if, yeah. if, and it came to the House of Commons who voted for it, would then lose the whip. And if they're losing the whip, then they're going to be in the same position as these Tory rebels who are not going to be picked as candidates for the seats. So they're not even going to be in a position where they can be couponed by... Yeah, yeah if, Boris, so Boris they're not picked as candidates and being an independent Boris with a letter Johnson. from Boris Johnson isn't going to come. I mean, it is an interesting question, I think, because about whether that Labour is going to intensify the whipping if there were to be another vote in the House of Commons, and I, I want to stress the, the if of, of that um, again, because basically both parties, again, you know, breaking with a lot of you know, like precedent, were pretty slack about punishing people who broke mm. the whip during the months between 
December and March when the meaningful votes were taking place. Boris Johnson tried to up the ante massively in regard to the Tory rebels on the, what was the, the basis for the Ben bill. It will be interesting if Labour is now going to counter by making it much, much harder for its own, own rebels. Now, you could look at the Conservative Party and what Johnson tried to do and say, well, look, this whipping discipline simply doesn't work under the conditions of the fixed-term parliament because it all basically works on the premise that actually you can force a general election if the rebels don't fall into um, line. So maybe it won't work any better for Corbyn than it worked for Johnson. But I think there is a difference on the Labour side is, is, is that it will have an effect then on the constituency parties and there are mechanisms for any rebels not to be stood as candidates. Okay, so briefly then, in 1923, another December election, the last one perhaps until the one that may be coming this December. I think that's right. You're looking, Chris is looking sceptical, but no, you think I'm right. So that one is interesting because it produces the first Labour government in our political history. It is a minority government. You know, it, it has a result that may be quite close to the result that could come from this election. It was the last election, maybe, until the next election, so the last one for 100 years where three parties got, I think, more than 20% of the vote, the, the Liberals... No it's, Labour. no, it's more than 26% of more the vote. More than 26% of the 90, vote. Yeah. yeah, so it was a proper three-way split. And then calculations had to be made in the aftermath of the result. Do you allow a minority Labour government to govern? Do you allow them to govern in the hope that they're really going to struggle and there'll have to be another election soon and you will reap the rewards, which seems to have been the Liberal calculation. Do you see parallels with that one? I mean, say that the coming election, if there is one coming, produces a, the possibility of a minority Labour government. Might the other parties be tempted to let Corbyn have a go on the assumption that it'll be such a disaster that if they hang on for nine months, they'll get another shot? I don't see the parallels as being so interesting with the 1923 election because the circumstances that led up to it are so very unlike what we have at the moment. So Baldwin had a comfortable majority from the 1922 election and in odd circumstances he decided that he needed a new mandate. Well, no, I suppose in a sense the parallel is with the 2015 election. 2017. No, the 2017 election, I'm sorry, where Theresa May had a, had a majority. A working but, majority and she needed but decided a bigger that, one in her own um, Because she wanted a particular mandate for her and for her approach to Brexit. So it's more like that because Baldwin had announced his commitment to imperial preference and he wanted, although he had a parliamentary majority, he wanted a renewed mandate. And then just as the British electorate didn't reward Theresa May with the majority she'd sought in 2017. The, um, the British electorate did not reward Baldwin with the majority he sought, and that led to the circumstances of the formation of the first Labour government. So 1923 reminds me more of 2017 than the election we're forecasting now in terms of the politics that, that leads up to it. I'd also be a bit sceptical about it being the last major three-party election, because I think 1929 was a three-party election where Lloyd George, running with the uh, manifesto that Keynes had had a, a great deal of input into, again, that was an election that produced a, a very seriously hung parliament with no prospect of a, a stable majority. That gave rise to the second Labour government. But I think 1923 and 1929 also, I mean, even if the Liberals didn't break the 26% barrier or whatever. I think that's absolutely a three-party election in a way that we haven't really had since because even when the Liberals surge, 
everyone knows that the great majority of contests are straightforward, conservative Labour fights, the Liberals may have an effect on the outcome of seats, but they're not going to win that many of them. In the 1920s, there were hundreds of seats that plausibly could have been won by the Liberals, and that only changes after 1929. So when I was reading about it, one of the things that did strike me as paralleled this question about the calculation that politicians often have to make of, would this be a good period of government to sit out, in a sense? Because I think the Liberal Democrats have learned their lesson from coalition, and it will take a lot to get Liberal Democrats back into a coalition. And the current Liberal Democratic leader has said she would not enter a coalition with Jeremy Corbyn anyway under any circumstances. But there was a kind of sense in 23, I think, particularly on the Liberals, who you know, were in trouble in various ways, that allowing a minority Labour government to fail would get them back in the game. And it was a miscalculation because the beneficiaries of the failure of the minority Labour government were the Conservatives in the end. And after all, Baldwin was back and he was going to be back for a long, long time. Now, there may be something of that calculation that has to take place again here. There is that thought about who wants to be sitting in the seat of power when the really tough decisions have to be made. But there is always a risk. If you think, say, the Liberal Democrats think, well, allow Corbyn to govern, he'll fail, and we will be the beneficiaries, maybe not. Maybe the Conservatives will be the beneficiaries. I think that that's And maybe he won't fail. I think that that's, that's right, but I think there's, a, there's another factor that's got to be you know, brought into consideration is, is that the players in, in 1923 outside the Labour Party didn't massively fear a Labour government. They didn't think it was something that was going to be particularly radical. You know, like Ramsay MacDonald, um, Philip Snowden, um, were committed on the, should we call them the, the foreign policy and the foreign economic policy questions to pretty much the same position that Baldwin were, was committed to. I mean, in one sense, if you just want to reduce it to, to one question, is, is were they going to commit to Britain returning to the gold standard, which was like a massive question at the time, in which like coalition and then the Conservative government have been trying to get the British economy moving towards. Labour were not going to, to reject that. And indeed, when they were in office between 1929 and 1931, they were very much a cautious orthodox in economic terms. Austerity. Government. Is, is, that isn't what, you know, Corbyn is not Ramsay MacDonald, if you want to put it in those terms. And there are clearly, I think, enough people in the Conservative Party, and I'm not making a judgment about this, but I'm just saying rightly or wrongly, who do not think it's acceptable for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister, and that wasn't the same in regard to Ramsay MacDonald. I think from the point of view of the the Conservatives as well, what's interesting about the 1923 election is, is, in one sense, it looks like a gamble, but it's actually quite a cautious move in regard to the Conservatives' own history, because basically what Baldwin's saying is, is like, we don't want to start doing things that we haven't got manifesto commitments to, and that's what moving towards protectionism would have entailed, because that had all the echo of what had gone back on in the 1910 crisis that we were talking about earlier and they didn't want to get on the wrong side of this issue about there needs to be some kind of consent expressed through elections to significant change and in the end when the Conservatives came back it's not like Baldwin then moved off in towards protectionism that took the depression in the 1930s for the Conservatives actually to move into that space so I would see it as him exercising some prudence and not thinking there was too much to worry about in terms of like what a Labour government would then do. Okay, I want to, and I'm going to do this briefly, you're going to give a very short answer to this because you can tell me this is rubbish. 
if you think it's rubbish. And if you don't, you can tell me it's not. <laughs> so one other parallel I've been thinking about. So there's also this question. There's an assumption, I think, that um, Johnson's facing lots of problems, but he might miraculously pull a rabbit out of the hat and somehow get a deal and somehow bring this first phase of the Brexit nightmare, the nightmare of the post-referendum period in British politics to an end, and then he'll reap these massive rewards. You know, if he's the guy who finally somehow gets some aspect of this sorted and then goes to an election, people will just say, Boris, you're our guy. So Boris Johnson would like to compare himself to Churchill. So there's one way in which it could be a Churchill comparison here, which is the 1945 election. So I don't know, but I think it's dangerous to assume that the electorate will reward the person who brings the nightmare to an end. Because there's also a possibility, and 1945 would be the parallel, the electorate thinks, well, if you finally at least put to bed the thing that we've been living through and you're actually asking us what future we want, we do not want to be governed by you. Do you think he might be that Churchill, the 1945 <laughs> Churchill? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> we could... Um, you don't have to answer that question. I think the answer is no, because the, <laughs> because the um, opposition is sufficiently divided that for something like the 1945 election result, you need millions of voters backing the main opposition party or backing a party that can win an overall majority. And it's just very difficult to see... Um, it, it, it's very difficult to see the Labour Party right now winning an overall majority of seats, yep. let alone a landslide, um, given how uh, fraught its polling position has been in the last... And, and Helen said Jeremy Corbyn's not Ramsay MacDonald. Well, he's not Clement Attlee either. And I think part of... To explain 1945, it's because Labour had played its full part mm. in the successful ending of the nightmare of the war. And I don't think the voters would look at Corbyn if Johnson does pull this off and say, well, it's partly thanks to him. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure doing this. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, and I have to sign off now by saying, my name is David Runciman and we have all been talking politics. So, uh, there's a woman sort of just yes, there with her hand up there. Thanks. I know you didn't want a Rory Stewart question, but may I ask one? Do you think his decision to stand for London Mayor is likely to make him a more marginal, a marginal figure in British politics rather than the more central figure he was hoping for? And, of course, he does fit into the period we've been talking about because he is Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> uh, so it's a really good question about independence. Um, and, you know, within the last 24 hours, we've seen the initial euphoria about his announcement. A lot of cold water poured on it by pollsters and others saying, you don't win these things as an independent. Can you, can you be...? Yeah, I, I think he'll stand for London Mayor and that he'll lose and then he'll become marginal and, like Michael Portillo, he will make television programmes. Um, <laughs> Um, as as, twi as 21st century Lawrence of, Lawrence's of Arabia do.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.